Uh, before I ask you to turn in the book of Acts, I want to say uh, a couple of things. So this morning, uh, we are uh, in the account of uh, Paul's third missionary journey. We're actually in the very last years uh, of it. And uh, I have intentionally not taken every episode, uh, scene in the book of Acts. And um, we've, we'll find here in a, in a moment that in the middle of this chapter that Paul um, is resolved to go to Rome via Jerusalem. And really the rest of the story of the book of Acts is Paul uh, headed there, some of the things he does on uh, the way. And we're not going to exhaust all of that as uh, it reads like a novel. And if you haven't ever read it before, well, you're in for a treat. Um, This is in keeping with uh, the call that Jesus gave uh, to Saul when he appeared to him on the Damascus Road, that he would be his witnesses to all peoples. And the third missionary journey is actually his most effective and productive time uh, in his ministry as as an evangelist, church planner, and apostle, as well as he's called to be a witness to kings and rulers. And that's what he's about uh, to be, as well as the people of Jerusalem. Well, if you would, would you stand and turn in your Bibles to Acts 19? And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. 
This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Acacia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying the gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him, and even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they'd come together. And some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know uh, that the city of Ephesus is the temple and keeper of the great uh, Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we are really in great danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no case that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. May God be pleased to add his blessing to his word. Amen. Please take your seats. Jesus said, I am the way, 
the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And Luke notes here Christians are increasingly known as the way. Uh, And this means that Christianity is increasingly being seen both by Jews and the Gentiles in Ephesus as a distinct uh, religion. Not Judaism, and certainly uh, not uh, the the religion of Artemis. And the way is a movement of people who share a new way of uh, living as well as a new set of uh, beliefs. As Christianity becomes known, it becomes clear that it is a distinctive, unique, unlike any other religion. The way is unique, and the way is also comprehensive. It speaks to all of life. Now, Luke shows us the uniqueness of Christianity in four uh, scenes. Christianity is, first of all, about life. It's a new kind of life. It's about experiencing the very life of God. The way is an experience of the life of God. And it becomes clear in the verses 1 to 7, Paul arrives in Ephesus and he finds a group of disciples and he inquires about their spiritual state. Uh, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, he asked. And they answer, we've never even heard of the Holy Spirit. They've been baptized into John's baptism, a baptism of repentance uh, for sin. And Paul explains to them that John's baptism was to prepare people uh, for the ministry and message of Jesus, that John himself had told them to believe in the one who was coming. Well, Paul doesn't instruct them here in some kind of special ritual to receive the Holy Spirit, nor does he give a lecture about the Holy Spirit Uh, and and his ministry. Instead, he announces the gospel uh, to them. And although Luke says it only in a couple words, undoubtedly, Paul uh, told them of the life and ministry of Jesus, of his death and resurrection. He explained that Jesus is the way and what that implied, uh, that in believing in Jesus, they would be right with God, restored and forgiven, and that his life and teaching reveals God's way of living. The way we begin to experience the life of the Spirit, we experience the life of God, is by receiving and believing in what Jesus has done. The New Testament teaches this in numerous places. Here's just a couple of examples. In Galatians 3, Paul writes, Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who doesn't have the spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. Or in the letter to the Corinthians, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. To believe in Jesus is to receive the very life of God, a life that comes uh, through the Holy Spirit as he indwells the Christian. 
In the next scene, we find Paul in the synagogue, and there for three entire months, people listen to him as he opens the scriptures, as he shows them that the scriptures uh, point to the Messiah, and he reasoned and argued with them that the Old Testament's announcement of the kingdom of God has come in the person of Jesus. But some were stubborn in their unbelief and became hostile and spoke uh, evil of the way. And Paul leaves, and then he rents a space in the lecture hall, either owned by or associated with a man whose nickname was Tyrant. I say nickname because it's not likely many parents would name their son Tyrant right from the beginning, no matter how he behaved when he was two years old. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the reason Paul does this, we see, is because the way is a truth to be believed. He goes to the lecture hall to engage people uh, and engage uh, their minds, just as he did uh, in the synagogue. And the way is a set of rational, objective, propositional truths, and it's based on God's previous revelation of himself. The way Christianity is truth to be understood, affirmed, and relied upon. You commit yourself to it. And Paul persuaded some of the Jews of the truth claims of Christianity. Um, and uh, in doing that, what he's saying is Christianity really isn't the same thing as Judaism. It has Jewish roots, of course. Um, but it's not simply that Judaism is one form of valid spirituality and Christianity is another. No, they're not equally valid and separate ways to know God. Christianity claims the only way one can fully know God, as he means to be known, is through Jesus Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that other spiritualities and religions contain no truth at all. It's just simply they don't have the full revelation of God and his will. Now, that strikes you as arrogant as it does many people, uh, please know that uh, it's not Christians who made this up. Jesus is uh, claiming uh, this. And it's a staggering uh, claim. And it's a claim that if it's true, has enormous implications uh, for our lives. And so if you have never investigated uh, these claims, wouldn't it make sense for you to take time to explore them, to see if in fact... Uh, they are uh, so. Christianity is not a private opinion about God, nor a per purely personal truth. It's not truth for me, uh, and you have some other truth. No, it is universal uh, truth, every bit as real as the uh, periodic table of elements or that chromosomes are uh, the way that genes come to expression that give rise to the physical attributes you have. Is gravity a purely personal truth? No, it's a reality uh, to be uh, respected. And so uh, the text poses this question, what are you doing with Jesus? In the next scene, Luke relates how uh, the power of God is displayed through Paul. He gives us two examples. The first is that people experience healing from touching work rags and aprons from Paul's uh, shop. 
these items that he used when he was making uh, tents. And these rags may be the rags that he wiped the sweat off his uh, brow with. People in that day, a popular belief was that spiritual power would be conveyed through such things. It's God who heals. These, uh, these items of clothing have nothing to do with the healing, but God's accommodating the people of that time in meaning them with their understanding of how God's power might touch their lives. The second display of power is in the attempt by some uh, Jewish exorcists to use Jesus' name as a magic formula, as an incantation. Now, Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire, and its economy and its fame rested upon religion. And there's the official religion of Ephesus, uh, uh, the worship of Artemis, the goddess. And there was the religion of the common people, which wasn't always the same thing. And here, the religion of the common people, as it has been through much of human history, is magic. Now, magic is power, is spiritual power, is the ability to influence the physical world, the world of relationships, uh, the world that we inhabit and are aware of, by calling on the invisible spiritual world. Jewish magic was famous in the ancient world because they could speak God's secret name. And these seven sons of this Jewish high priest tried to use Jesus' name to set a man free, a possessed by an evil spirit. And for their effort, they get a beating. Luke is telling us you can't use uh, Jesus. Christianity is unlike magic. It's not a way to use God to get what you want. You can't manipulate God. That's what magic is at heart. It's manipulating unseen powers to get what you want. But you cannot manipulate the one and true and living God. And the way is a life of submission. Uh, You relate to God in submission and not manipulation. That's what this beating of these seven men shows us. Uh, And when word about this begins to spread, people are not simply surprised that it happened. They are much more careful in the use of the name of Jesus after that. Jesus is extolled. And this woke up many of the young Christians in Ephesus to the evil behind magic's power. And so they make a full and clean break with the pagan religious practices that they'd yet uh, to abandon. They burned a huge number of books. A silver piece was the equivalent of one day's labor for a common laborer. So this is 50,000 days of labor by a common laborer. It's a lot. Now, having said all this, I want you to Uh, Keep in mind, you don't want to focus on just one aspect of the way, the experience of the life of God, or just on the truth of God. We need to keep all of this uh, together with submission. See, most practicing Christians would take no issue with what I've just said. They would agree with everything I've just said, but they might be unaware of the power of other things in their lives. Just take uh, consumerism. Now, we uh, live in just a time of amazing choice, right? 
You go to the store and it's overwhelming to go down the cereal aisle, right? <laughs> or to shop for a watch, even in Walmart. Uh, the options seem limitless. And if you don't like what you find in the store, well, go on the internet. And they truly, it's just mind-numbing, the choices we have. And the choice, being able to choose what we want, uh, shapes not just how we shop, but it shapes so much of life. Small children today often aren't interested in what has been prepared for dinner. They expect one of their parents to, uh, well, let them order off the menu, so to speak. They want to exercise their choice. And choice uh, has, for many, many people, uh, become uh, their supreme value. With a freedom to choose your gender, uh, to choose to regard life in the womb as impersonal or a personal baby, the, the heart of choice arises out of a sense of self that's autonomous, that's self-defined, that's self-asserting, uh, that finds and creates meaning for its uh, self without reference to the will of God or uh, uh, God's uh, ordering in the creation or our interdependence with other people. Choice becomes the thing of ultimate uh, worth. And this is, well, incompatible with a life of submission to Christ. It's ultimately incompatible uh, with the way. You can tell whether you're living in submission uh, uh, to the way by whether, in fact, you're willing to submit to other human beings. You see, you can't really claim to be in submission to God if you're not in submission to anybody else, whether that's authorities or parents or the leadership of a local church. The followers of Jesus are to live in community, uh, to have significant personal relationships with other Christians who don't see everything the same way you do or I do. And that calls for, well, a life of uh, submission. The life of love is a life, ultimately, of submission. Next, Lou shows us that the way is comprehensive. It impacts every aspect of human life. And he gives us two summary uh, statements, one in verse 10. And this continued for two years. That's Paul's lecture in the hall of Tyrannus. So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And then in verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail uh, mightily. Luke is telling us that there's substantial uh, gospel advance here in Ephesus. Ephesus and the surrounding cities in the Roman uh, region known as Asia were impacted by the gospel. And the story of the riot that's told here is one of those impacts. There are really two lessons to be drawn uh, from this. I'll tell you what they are uh, so that you, for some of you I know, are, are careful note-takers, uh, and then you'll, you can hear them. The gospel will provoke opposition, and it will engender change. So Ephesus was the center of the worship of Artemis or Diana, the hunter or goddess of nature, and sometimes the goddess of death. And her temple was one or two miles north of the city, and it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was the largest roofed structure in the world at that time. 
And it had a meteor, and it also had a bank. The meteor uh, was thought to be an image of the goddess, and the bank received deposits from all over the Roman Empire. Now, the religion of Artemis was one of the most far-reaching religions in the Roman Empire. We know of 33 other centers where uh, she was worshipped. She was a major religious force, actually unlike any other. And it was big business. Uh, Artemis and the silversmiths, uh, excuse me, Demetrius and the silversmiths made replicas of the temple that were bought and given as an offering each year when pilgrims came to honor the goddess. There was no other city in the Roman uh, world who was centered on the worship of a goddess or a god. And no other city was as dependent on its commerce uh, for that worship. And so in some ways, Ephesus was like Mecca is today in the Islamic world. The entire city's prosperity was tied up in the cult and its business. And so the riot breaks out as Demetrius begins to put the pieces together. He summons the guild of silversmiths and other craftsmen and says to them, you know, we've been making a good living here till Paul showed up. And he's been misleading people. In fact, the whole of Asia is beginning uh, to fall under the sway of this idea that man-made gods are no gods at all. And he then he warns them of future uh, losses. Our trade, the temple, and even the goddess herself will be diminished. And this will affect not only our city, but the whole world. He's not really overstating his case. That's why I gave you all that background. See, see he's really talking about something that had global impact. And the guild workers, well, naturally, they're... They are upset. And so they begin to shout in unison, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And soon the city's in an uproar and a crowd gathers. Uh, two of Paul's companions are drugged uh, into the theater, and the theater holds 25,000 people. Paul wants to go in and speak to the crowd. The disciples forbid him, and even some of his highly placed uh, friends in government say, don't go there. A Jewish Christian, probably a Jewish Christian, tried to restore order. And as soon as it became clear to those assembled that he was Jewish, well, the disdain for uh, Judaism manifests its ugly uh, head. And then in unison, a crowd numbering thousands, tens of thousands, maybe 20, even 25,000 voices, for two hours shout in unison, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Just imagine being there. Well, the city clerk came out, and in spite of how you might think of the clerk, he was actually the highest appointed official uh, in that uh, city. And he uh, goes in and quiets the crowd, and he insists that Artemis is, in fact, in no danger of losing her honor. Uh, the city's economy is not threatened uh, by Paul's uh, teaching, and he warns them they'd better calm down. If uh, Demetrius and the craftsmen uh, want to pursue a lawsuit, well, the courts are open. Have at it, he says. But Rome is intolerant of disorder. 
And we had better quiet down here because we will not be able to give an account for why there's almost been a riot today. Now, Luke reports these events, and he only subtly tells you what he thinks of these. On the one hand, Demetrius is right, and the city clerk is wrong about the gospel. The word of God, uh, the gospel, critiques the idols of Ephesus. It critiques everybody's life commitments in every city and people group and culture and nation. The gospel announces there's one true God, the creator who is also redeemer and Lord. And he's invisible and spiritual and he alone is to be worshipped. And Demetrius gets it. He understood that. And the gospel sooner or later touches the values, even the political and economic structures in which our lives are entwined. The gospel is more than a set of ideas and ethics. It's a way. It's a way of being. It's a way of life. It's a way that touches everything we are. And when non-Christians in societies understand this, they respond either by embracing it and experiencing change, or there's resistance. Just think about it. If uh, you met someone and they declared to you that everything about you, what you did for work, the people you cherished, the celebrations you enjoyed, your cultural identity, all had to be rethought and reoriented to the reality of Jesus, how would you respond? Well, this should both, what we have here should both encourage as well as sober us. So the gospel can have enormous impact. And Luke draws attention to it with those uh, summary uh, verses. It can impact both individuals and societies. And this has happened repeatedly in history, and it's still happening around the world. In the Western world, as you know, the Roman Empire uh, was overtaken by Christianity. Uh, So was medieval Europe once again, as uh, the gospel was unshackled in the Reformation. It was the gospel and its uh, foundational values of human life and the dignity of all people that brought the end to the uh, slave trade. In fact, the foundations for most of the values in the Western uh, world arose out of Christianity. Those values aren't present in many uh, other parts of the world precisely because Christianity uh, did not shape those places uh, deeply. But today, what's happened is, is that the, the biblical Christian values of human life and dignity of all people have become secularized. And now we have the secular idea of human rights. And today it's a challenge uh, for us uh, to interact in the public square around these issues until we are clear about how it is that we recover these foundations. We need to help people see that human rights has no foundation apart from the doctrine of the creation and uh, man being made in God's image and the redemptive power of Christ. When it's regained, then Christianity powerfully challenges things. The sex industry with its exploitation of women and children exposes the enslaving character of pornography. And if we want to see Christianity impact uh, America, 
we're going to have to, well, we're going to have to do some very challenging work because we're going to have to regain biblical categories and thinking if we're going to talk effectively about these uh, things. You see, if we're going to address the issues around human sexuality, which uh, there are many, then we need to ground them in uh, the creation and uh, God's plan for sexuality, um, as well as God's moral standards. It's not enough just to say these are God's moral standards. That's not going to persuade people uh, today. And if we're going to talk about human sexuality, we have to be honest uh, with people as they encounter Christianity, that following Christ means surrendering your sexual life to him. But the gospel also announces wonderful freedom and the power to release people from sexual bondage of any sort. Um, and uh, Paul celebrates that in one of his letters, saying, and some of you were these things. You see, the gospel calls us simultaneously to be clear about God's design and intent for sex, but also compassionate with those whose lives have violated his desires. That's not an easy thing uh, to walk out. And I, I, I won't, but I could take time and develop this in, in many different things. The, the tensions around different people groups that we often have called race, the Bible calls ethnicity. And the Bible deals at great length with how important ethnicity is in God's purposes and plans. And how it is that God ultimately is the one who originated ethnicity and how we are called uh, to respect one another's ethnicity. But it also calls out the sins uh, that uh, are a result of our ethnicity and names uh, uh, several of them very clearly. And in order to be able to talk about these things, which are difficult things, we really have to have biblical categories. And we begin to see the implications of the gospel, that the doctrine of justification allows us to face our sin, our ethnic sin, and to name it, as well as to turn from it. It calls us to actually learn how to love our neighbors of a different ethnicity as ourselves. And it calls us to deep unity in the body of Christ. And recognize, brothers and sisters, we don't have deep unity around our ethnicities. There's, there's brokenness and ethnic sin in the church, and it's something we have to face and talk about. You see, throughout history, uh, the gospel uh, has and it can have today enormous impact. It still changes lives and cities. But it also results in pushback and opposition. We see that here in our text. The first century Ephesians pushed back. The Vikings of Scandinavia pushed back. Uh, the leaders in Soviet uh, Russia uh, did. And sometimes it takes decades uh, even centuries for the gospel to impact uh, a culture, a people, often with many failures, and sometimes it takes great perseverance before people come to submit to the lordship of Christ. Sometimes after initial footholds of acceptance, the gospel is just pushed out of a society. That's been true in Japan. Uh, the Christian novelist Sushaku Endo, in his book Silence, tells that story, and Martin Scorsese is, uh, well, he's made a very powerful film in telling uh, that story. The first 
Jesuit missionaries who arrived in the 16th century in Japan uh, were well received. And by 1549, the church had swollen to 300,000 believers. But Japanese warlords did not like what they saw Christianity doing to their culture. And so in 1597, they arrested 26 Christians, six foreign missionaries, 20 Japanese Christians, including three young boys. They mutilated their uh, ears and noses, forged, marched them 500 miles to Nagasaki, and there they crucified them and ran them through with spears. And that was uh, the beginning of an intense persecution in Japan uh, that uh, led to the, the people, many, many thousands of people turning away and denying uh, Christ. These complexities should temper our tendency to read history with a kind of a triumphalism. After all, even in the case of Ephesus, the worship of Artemis continues for two centuries. And on the other hand, we shouldn't despair uh, either. We just need to recognize that the gospel brings uh, sobering challenges. In our time, uh, we need to recognize the gospel can't be just a personal faith. It can't be compartmentalized. It has implications for all of life. It has implications for economics and politics. But navigating all of that is, well, that's hard. And that's whether it's in our business life or our cultural loyalties, our political ideologies. No, uh, we have to wrestle with what's idolatrous, what's really not of the way of the Lord Jesus. And that requires hard, even uncomfortable work and reflection. And it's something ultimately we have to do together in community. We can't ourselves sort all this out. We need to hear other points of view and together discern what this means like. The way of Jesus is challenging on every level. And yet the message of the cross in all its foolishness also has the beauty and power to transform and heal and sustain people and society people groups, and indeed nations. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Let us follow him. Let's pray. Uh, gracious Father, we, we thank you that uh, uh, Jesus came and revealed himself uh, to be all these things. And Lord, we pray if there's anyone here who's unsure of his claims, who hasn't investigated them, uh, that you would stir in them the kind of curiosity and restlessness that would cause them uh, to search out these things. And we, O oh Father, as we uh, live in a day where the biblical foundations for many of the values in our culture have been lost, uh, we ourselves, Lord, uh, need grace uh, to walk out what this means. And so we pray uh, for that. Uh, for patience to learn uh, from one another and from the larger body of Christ, that we might once again uh, find our voice and know how uh, to address these issues. Lord, that you'd free us from idolatry, whether it's consumerism or in any other uh, sphere of our lives. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.